Um, I want to get straight into our story today, if that's okay. There's quite a lot of it, and uh, we're going to be looking at the story of David and Goliath. Um, If you've got a Bible, you can find that story in 1 Samuel 17, and uh, in a moment, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pick out some kind of selected chunks. I won't read the whole thing because it is actually a really long chapter, but I want to pick out the key parts of this chapter that I think tell the story really well. Um, David and Goliath is, of course, universally known, if you, even if you have no church background. Most people know the story of the, the young underdog David who takes on and defeats the mighty warrior Goliath using nothing more than five small stones from a brook and his slingshot. We like David, don't we? We, we want to relate to David. We get our kids to color in pictures of David as he beats the bully Goliath. It's a bedtime story for our kids. For some, it's just a kind of a fun, harmless, motivational story that we want to convey that uh, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. But hopefully what we'll see in just a moment is that it's not harmless and it's not fun, actually. It's a story of warfare and brutality and violence and drama. It's not at all a children's bedtime story. This is, a, this is an 18. This is an action horror. But it's an important story because I believe that what we'll see in this really important uh, episode in Israel's history will tell us something greater about the kind of the arc, the whole narrative of all of Scripture and what Jesus is like and what Jesus has done and that, uh, importantly, whether or not you're a follower of Jesus or not, what this actually means for you. Okay, let's, let's read the story. The, um, the background here is that Israel, the people of God, led by King Saul, have been under threat by the Philistines, another local tribe. And for years, the Philistines have been threatening to ruin Israel and to take what's theirs. And we join the story at the start of a battle with the two armies facing off against each other. We're going to read it. It'll come up on the screen. I'm I'm going to warn you, there's quite a bit of it this morning, but hopefully you can kind of stay with me as I read this. Here we are. Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesdemim between Soko and Azekar. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley in between them. Now a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was over nine feet. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing about 55 kilograms. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. So he's already going into battle carrying the equivalent of essentially my teenage daughter on his back. (laughs) Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day, I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, 
Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified, as I'm sure I would be. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son, David, the shepherd, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. They're with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. David said to Saul, let no one lose account, lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man and he's been a warrior since his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God, the Lord, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then David took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without even a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharaim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered the camp. David took 
the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistine's weapons in his own tent. Next time you get your kids to color in a picture of David and Goliath. (laughs) That's right. Don't forget the severed head on a stick in the city center. (laughs) One of the things that you'll notice as you read through the Bible is how it all holds together and how kind of one historical account sometimes like this one can illuminate and bring coherence to so much else that the Bible outlines. And I I think this is a really important story for us because what we see here is a kind of gospel summary. We often hear the story and we identify with David, the underdog, of course, who in the strength of the Lord faces up to a much bigger foe and overcomes him. And so we think about ways in which we can become more like David. But actually, for the purpose of what I want to achieve today and to highlight to you, I want us to try and see the story through the lens of the terrified Israelites who are under threat from and under attack from Goliath with no way out. Let's look at the story a bit closer. The first thing we should see is that this is a story of representative champions. Goliath, all by himself on behalf of the Philistines, faces down Israel. And David, as the representative of the entire nation, goes out to battle on behalf of his people. His victory will be all of their victory. That's that's important to recognize. We'll come back to that. Secondly, Goliath is said to be wearing scale armor. That suit of armor would have weighed about 55 kilograms, about seven stone, I think that is. And it was a particular type of armor that was made up of hundreds of pieces of bronze, all tied together with cord and stuck on leather. In the daylight, the armor would have given off the appearance of a huge bronze, scaly reptile, scales all moving together and glistening in the midday sun. He would have looked like a serpent. And look what he's doing. He's standing up before the people of God, and he's hurling insults and accusations at them. He's cursing them, and he's telling them that they're crushed and that their end is near. For 40 days he's doing this. He's attacking God's people, and he's threatening death and disgrace. What's to be done? Well, enter the champion of the people of God, David. Now, as is often the case with these stories from the Old Testament, As we read them, we should see them starting to point towards and outline something of the life of Jesus as well. In this case, I think we see an outline of the whole gospel. Because David, as he's portrayed in the story, is a kind of forerunner of Jesus. And this story offers us a glimpse into the gospel, therefore. Let's just recap on some of the things that David says that point us to the gospel. Firstly, he says to Israel, to God's people, let no one lose heart. Your servant will fight for you. He says to Saul, your servant has killed the wild animals that have terrified his sheep. This Philistine will be like one of them. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Now, as the king, Saul really should have gone out to fight against Goliath, but he was terrified like the rest of the people. So step forward, the servant of Israel, the shepherd who has fought wild animals at great cost to himself to protect the sheep, the brave-hearted defender who will one day himself 
be recognized as king. And then to Goliath, the serpent, the troubler of God's people, he says this, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. In David, we see a servant king, a king like Jesus, a skilled shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep, who will not allow any threat against God's people from a serpent-bodied accuser. And like David, he comes with the power and the authority of God to deal with it. There should be glimpses of the gospel already starting to materialize for us in the story. And to kind of further highlight this, I want to zoom out a little bit further and see how this story points to something wider and bigger in Scripture and gives us a bit of a wide-angle view, not just about God's salvation plan for the Israelites that day, but about God's salvation plan for all of his people across all of time. And to do that, I want to go right back to the start. Let's look at uh, something from the story of the Garden of Eden in Genesis. As you'll know, God creates Adam and Eve. He loves them. He provides for them. He gives them purposeful tasks in creation. He communes with them daily. He gives them all the fruit in the garden, but he tells them for their welfare, there is one fruit that you are not to eat. And then the serpent, Satan, comes to Eve. He challenges what God has said, convinces her to eat of the tree. She gives it to Adam and a shockwave ripples through the entire universe, ripping it apart. Sin enters the world. Man is separated from God and banished from his presence in the garden. And things have never been right since. And as God is pronouncing judgment against mankind, in Genesis 3, verse 14 and 15, listen to God's judgment against the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. This part's really important. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The first sin, this sin I've just talked about, the original sin, the fall of mankind, which broke up God's perfect creation and created separation between a a perfect God and a sinful man, that sin invited a curse which involved the serpent being laid low. But included in that judgment, God explains the way that history will now work between man and the serpent. The serpent will strike at the heel of man, but the man will crush his head. This passage in Genesis is often called the first gospel, the Proto-Evangelion, because right at the start of the whole story, we see that throughout history, there will be a serpent who snaps at the heel of God's people, but there will also be a man, an offspring of Adam, who crushes his head. If you read through the scriptures, you'll see this motif repeated again and again. Satan seeks to snap at the heel of God's people and a deliverer, a Messiah, is brought forth to save the people. 
That's what we see with Moses in that story, if you're familiar with that, and the snake king Pharaoh who would snuff out God's people. And there are, there are many other accounts like that throughout the history of the people of God. Today, we still see this with world powers and governments who try to silence the church and snuff out God's people. We see it right now in so much of the Middle East and Asia and China. There's always been a snake-like satanic power that has sought to devour and to strike God's people. But in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, God has already put a parameter in place. The snake will only ever be able to snap at the heel of what is God's. But the deliverer will crush his head. Goliath, snake-like, scaly armor glinting in the sunshine, is calling down curses against God's people and accusing them of all sorts, telling them what they are, cursing them. But we shouldn't be surprised by this. It was always thus that a, a snake would snap at the heel and accuse God's people. You may know that in your own life. Then David, this shepherd boy from an obscure family with a humble upbringing, comes, comes out against the serpent king, and empowered by God, he strikes and takes the serpent Goliath's head with his own sword and hands victory to the people of God. Yeah. It's the Genesis 3 promise all over again. The offspring of Adam and Eve will come under attack from the snake, but another son of Adam will overcome him by crushing his head. That's what we see in the gospel. The serpent, Satan, who has all through the generations been snapping at their people of God, taunting, accusing, just like Goliath, proudly boasting of his greatness and demeaning the power of God and calling down all sorts of curses on you and on the church worldwide, sitting behind every dark power in the world, manipulating circumstances, working to empower extremist political and ideological forces against the church, a Goliath, an unassailable giant, and all his cohorts warring against us until one is sent to save us. One who says to us, let no one lose heart. Your servant will fight for you. One who is well accustomed to the protection of his sheep against wild animals and threats. One who hears the taunts of the enemy and says, no, you bring javelins and spears, you snake, but I come in the name of the Lord, and the battle belongs to him. Yeah. A humble servant, anointed to be king, who says to us, I didn't cause this mess, but I will go out before you as your representative. You stay behind me in my protection. I will fight this battle on all our behalf. One who faces down the taunts of the serpent enemy of God's people, taunted himself and spat on and cursed and mocked even as he died on the cross. This is the gospel. Adam should have cast that serpent out of the garden for challenging God, but instead he succumbed to his temptations and he brought sin and death over all of us. One man's actions did that until one man, Jesus, overcomes that serpent once and for all at the cross, freeing us all from death and Hades and bringing life to all who will follow him. At the cross, the serpent issued ever so painful a snap to the heel, but the promise was always that it would only be a snap. Because on the same cross, Jesus also removes the guilty verdict over all of us and he frees the bonds of death that were holding us and he crushes the head of the serpent forever. 
and the oppressed and terrified people have got to set free. The book of Revelation, which also takes a a kind of a wide-angle view of all of human history, the other end of the Bible, explains Christ's victory over Satan like this. It says, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night, he's been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. In Jesus, at the cross, our servant king has gone to war on our behalf and defeated our Goliath. He has crushed the ancient serpent's head and he tells us, let no one lose heart. It is just as it was always intended. You need fear no enemy. Your champion has overcome. The battle belongs to the Lord. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And as you know, once Goliath is defeated, it's a field day for the Israelites. It says, when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the road. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered the camp. When the strong man Goliath was dealt with by David, the Philistine camp was utterly defenseless and open to being completely plundered. All the treasure and the weaponry and the money in the camp was there for the Israelites to just help themselves. What can we learn from that part of the story? In the Gospels, in Mark 3, we see a picture of Jesus who's casting out demons and he's setting people free and he's bringing people to new life in him wherever he goes. And the religious establishments are not happy about this. They're super suspicious. He must be demon-possessed, they say. There's no ways that somebody can command demons unless they're on the inside of the demonic kingdom themselves. He's a charlatan. And Jesus replies like this in verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. What does that mean? Well, in a sense, David and Goliath can help us here. What we've seen in the story is David walking out from the Israelite battle ranks into Goliath, the strong man's house, dealing with him, metaphorically tying him up and rendering him powerless and opening up the strong man's house for plunder. Likewise, what Jesus is saying here is that he has gone out from amongst us, has taken on the strong man Satan on our behalf, has dealt with him and has rendered him powerless by crushing his head on the cross. And now he tells us the enemy camp, the strong man's house, it's wide open for plunder. What does that mean for us? It means that anything that Satan holds captive, he's now powerless to hold on to. At the cross, Jesus entered into the strong man's house, took away his power to hold us captive, and simply plucked us into salvation life with him. The strong man is down. His head has been removed. Jesus has entered into the enemy camp and taken back his treasure, us. 
Now, if you don't yet know and live for Jesus, well, my question for you this morning is, what are you living for? It'll be something that directs your actions and demands your worship. In that sense, what the gospel tells us is that you're actually still held captive in enemy territory, obeying a different sort of God, a a different strong man. And the message of the cross is that it needn't be like that. The prison doors are wide open. Just walk out and receive the salvation, the eternal life, the deep purpose and belonging and the life-giving relationship that is found in Jesus. And for all of us, there is more plunder, more treasure. Let's look at that verse in Mark 3 again. It says, No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Next verse. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven their sins. Forgiven all their sins. That's the basis on which he's healing and setting people free in the first place. So far as it goes for us, not only are we a people freed from death and sin, but because Jesus has tied up the strong man, all our sins are forgiven too. And that means that we can stand today knowing that as long as we are in Jesus, not only has death and sin lost its power as if that wasn't enough, but there is nothing that we've ever done that should hinder us from knowing fullness and freedom in every area of life. It means that you no longer need to feel any sense of hopelessness or guilt, of shame, of fear, of insecurity. It means that because the enemy lies beheaded in a field, his army strewn along the roads, you needn't live with the hurt of past mistakes. Because if the enemy camp has been blown wide open and Jesus says, come, then not only are you saved from the enemy in his clutches, but you are saved to Jesus. And he is the healer of broken hearts and the prince of peace and the lifter of our heads and the restorer of broken relationships. It's all yours. The offer today is to come to Jesus, accept his free gift of life and rest in his promise to sustain you and to lead you in paths of rightness and to cover you with his goodness. All who are weary, come to me, he beckons, and you will find rest for your souls. If you're tired or weary or hopeless or ashamed or broken or hurting or far from him or lost at sea or you're troubled in mind or body or spirit, You've come to the right place. Gateway, let nobody lose heart. There is no situation that he can't fix, no malady that he can't heal, no life that he can't save. Come and receive him today. Our Jesus has conquered.